We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. This is Mean Lean from ArsenalVision.co.uk and I'm so happy. Oh yeah, I am. Or not. Uh, disappointing start of the season is um, an understatement. But um, yes, in today's show we've got Elliot, we've got Paul's back from his um, little break and we've got Tim Stillman. So um yeah, if you want to read any of my thoughts on the match, then head over to arsenalvision.co.uk in the review section. And also, if you want to have your own say in the uh, post-match Q&A, you can uh, contact me and um, I'll make sure I send you some questions. I do that for every game, so yeah. Anyway, enjoy the podcast, if you can, and um, back after Leicester City. Yes, I am. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner, and that's precisely what we're going to do. We're going to flip out about the Arsenal. The title of our last podcast was chosen by Linus to be How Mad Should We Be? The answer, as it turns out, so mad. All the mad. And all the mad is coming to you right now on this fine edition of the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast, coming to you one day after... 
the exciting start to the season that was Liverpool 4, Arsenal 3. Uh, we would ask, before you sink into depression with us, that you go and give this podcast five stars, tell your friends and family about it, tell them that this is the only place to turn for long-winded rants about the club that you love, uh, and and download and share and rate and all that stuff. But we are joined once uh, once in future King returns. Paul, you can find him on Twitter at Pause and in my pants. Hello, Pause. Woohoo! Good to have you back, James. Unable to make it, uh, I can only assume the Arsenal killed him. But here, as always, our uh, trusted friend and ally, the man who could bring perspective to any loss uh, and was probably there to see it. Uh, Tim, you can find him on Twitter at Stilberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Haven't missed a game since, what, 91? Is that right? Um, well, last... 93, 97? What was it? Last home game was October 1999. 99? <laughs> yeah. I thought you were on a streak or something. Sorry. And I've actually had, I've had a massive reprieve there because uh, one of my best friends is getting married on the 26th of November. Yes, I read he this. Was my best man at my wedding. So I, I and his fiance has cheated on him. <laughs> <laughs> Woohoo! And, uh, not quite, but for once, for once in my life, Sky Sports have done me a massive solid and changed Bournemouth at home to a Sunday. So good because I was, I was actually going to bang his fiance for you. <laughs> Charitable man, I tell you what, this is the kind of thing that we could talk about for an hour to save us having to talk about the uh, the other thing. The... I thought I'd go for the good news first. Yeah, thanks, thanks for getting that out of the way. Um, okay, so the bad news is Arsenal. Um, let's jump into it one step at a time. We'll get to larger issues, but first, uh, Paul, since you decided not to be with us for our season preview, you were not able to opine on what the starting lineup would be for Liverpool. But Tim and myself, and I think James as well, all felt fairly confident that it was not going to be holding and Chambers and that he would come up with some solution to protect them, uh, maybe get Nacho in there or even rush Koss back or something like that. Tim, how surprised were you that he did, in fact, go for holding and Chambers? Yeah, quite surprised. I suppose in his press conference on Friday, he did seem to hint at it quite a lot and... I suppose that you take um, Arsene Wenger in context. This is a guy who's not afraid to throw in kind of young players. And it, it was quite a young team, actually, when you take players like Iwobi. We think of Bellerin as a senior player, but he's, he's really not yet. Um, so it was, it was quite young. I, w- I was a bit surprised. Um, I did begin to think when I saw the press conference on Friday, he did seem to hint quite strongly that he was, he was prepared to go with Chambers and Holding. And uh, I imagine that he did that just because the injury to Gabriel happened so late that he just perhaps didn't really have the time or the inclination to stick Monreal at left back. Maybe if it had happened three weeks ago, um, he might have felt, well, I've perhaps got a couple of weeks here to really give give Nacho um, some games at centre-half because it's been nearly two years since he played there. Um, so, I, you know, I, I was a little bit surprised, yes, but uh, maybe I shouldn't have been um, shouldn't mm-hmm. have been surprised, really. And for what it's worth, and I'm sure we'll get into this, I, I think Nacho did not have a good game anyway. And um, even more than that, I think Liverpool targeted him, um, which is, is never a great look, really, particularly for someone that I think we all consider a pretty good, solid, reliable defender, but Liverpool seemed to see something there, and they went for it, and um, yeah, they got it. I uh, I called him, I believe, a point of strength 
in our season preview podcast. So yeah, that's that's not a good look, especially if there are certain players going into the season you assume you don't have to worry about, and potentially you suddenly have to worry about them. Um, Paul, the other really interesting selection was the midfield. Shaka did not get to start. Uh, Coughlin was chosen to pair in central midfield with El Nenny. How surprised were you by the selection, and what was your pre-match feeling about that decision? Um, well, I think it goes hand-in-hand hand with the centre-back selection. If you're going to go that route, then you better put some solidity in front of them and probably some players that are used to playing together. I mean, if this were a few weeks into the season, I've no doubt Chaka would have started there to help with distribution, recirculation, all that kind of stuff. But he hasn't played a lot of minutes for us, and he hasn't really solidified any partnerships yet. And so what you want to plonk in front of the two centre-backs at this point is players who know each other. Um, So I think it made sense, though I do think our biggest problem in this whole game was distribution from the back seemed to be the thing that just kept landing us in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it it was problematic. And I mean, one of the things we discussed pre-match, I keep referencing back to the time when you weren't here. Uh, the, we'll, yeah. we'll refer to those as happier times. Mm. Not not because of you, of course. No. Um, and, you know, one of the things we talked about was Coughlin and whether he should start and how I thought he was vulnerable to being pressed. And it certainly did appear that way, at least in the 20 minutes um where they, they really dominated in the second half. We'll, we'll get to that period of play in a moment, but just specifically with respect to Coughlin, Tim, what about you? Were you surprised he was chosen? Um, I know you had said that he was effective at pressing, which proved yeah. to be true. What did you make of the decision? Yeah. Um, I, I actually expected him to start, but I expected him to start alongside uh, Granite Jacker, um, which obviously didn't happen. My reading of it is... That um, the way Arsenal were kind of shaping up in pre-season, and I think we saw it today, um, and Paul, I know you wrote about this at the end of last season, Arsenal, by luck or design, all of a sudden have very front-footy, intercepty type players. Um, and you can see that what one of the things we're going to try to do this year is uh, something I suspected we might, um, is become a bit more of a high-pressing team. And I think possibly Coquelin, um maybe at this moment in time is more suited to that than, than Granite Jacker, who seems to be a bit more of a kind of sitter mm-hmm. or someone that moves laterally across the pitch. I also think that it was interesting that I think Wenger tried to pick, quote-unquote, his fittest eleven. So um, something I tweeted about earlier today was I didn't really understand the kind of the players weren't at the physical level to compete um, comment when I think six of the starting lineup, um, well, six of the outfield players had had a full preseason um, with Arsenal, but reflecting on it, I think possibly what he meant um, was for the style of play that Arsenal were going for, mm-hmm. which actually worked really, really well in the first half. They were pushing Liverpool high up the pitch. And I think he probably just thought at this moment in time, um, Francis Coquelin's better equipped to do that because um, as Paul said he knows the team he has got that kind of front foot um, on him he's had a full pre-season and I think just because of the game it was as well you know I I think you look at I've watched Chelsea tonight I've watched the Man City game 
Uh, I saw bits of, of Man United in the pub and none of those teams looked fully physically prepared, which I, I think you expect at this stage of the season. But they had, you know, more winnable fixtures, really. And, and we, you know, we kind of come out with quite a hard one straight away. And so I think Wenger didn't want really to spend this game bedding Granite Jacker in. Um, so, I, I, you know, I I was surprised that it wasn't Coquelin and Jacker, but I, I think it's just because he really wanted this kind of high pressing. And uh, I think what he meant by that kind of weren't at the physical level to compete was that they couldn't keep that up, um, particularly in the second half. Mm-hmm. Paul, your thoughts? Yeah, um, I think Tim's onto stumped something. Um, and to be fair, in the first half, it worked like a charm. Um, let's contrast it to last year against West Ham, which we also lost in a game we went into thinking we'd be in good shape. And they came at us like a buzzsaw because they'd been playing Europa League all summer and they just had an energy level we couldn't match till about 25, 30 minutes into the game. This one we started like a train. Uh, and if you look, we won basically every challenge everywhere on the pitch for the first 45 minutes. Cockalam. Uh, you know, Coquelin isn't a flow player. He's a player who's he's kind of a series of moments in every game. Uh, you know, as we all know, he's not all about flow. He's not all about position. Uh, some would say he's not at all about position, but I think that's overly harsh. Um, and you know, the first half was was very much. Uh, ha- had we gone into come out of that first half with a go with a one zero and uh, Rhodes the second half to victory uh you would have said Cockland Cockland had a great game and kind of led the charge um unfortunately the story takes a dark turn on 45 minutes and 10 seconds as I'm sure we all kind of got that (laughs) feeling once that you know you just knew didn't you we've done that a few times Mm The other, the other thing you knew, and uh, we'll talk about it more in the comeback, was we would stop one goal short. Um, but to Tim, so the, the other point I wanted to add was to Tim's uh, comment on the front-footedness. The, I, we probably all spotted that moment early in the second half when we were a couple of goals down and we were trying to get back into the game where Elneny and Coquelin were literally pushing up to the right corner of the pitch. Um, nobody in midfield pressing to win the ball mm-hmm. um, because that was, you know, that was how we were going to win the midfield battle. And it, it was kind of stark in just how far forward the two center mids were. It worked. We got the ball um, at, in that particular line of play, but it definitely talks to uh, Tim's point there. Yeah. You, you know, the interesting thing is you can create narratives in your mind um, based on expectation. And the expectation for me was that we were going to play poorly when I saw the lineup. And so the first half was a revelation. But mm. on closer reflection, I mean, first of all, XG, I think minus the penalty, we had 0.6 expected goals. We didn't really create clear chances. And 7 a.m. kickoff, who does the great by the numbers column for Arsblog, posted some interesting stats from the first 45 minutes, which were presumably when we were dominant. We edged the passing 240 to 229, so just slightly. We were out-tackled 19 to 14. Um, We lost possession more, 15 to 9. Where it really showed up, the pressing, was that we 
we intercepted them twelve to three. Out intercepted them twelve to three, and we were only forced to make three clearances to their twelve. But we took fewer shots, six to seven, and created the only big chance of the first forty-five, which was the penalty. But Liverpool created three dangerous shots, and and I am re- literally reading from his uh, by the numbers column. So big credit to seven a.m. kickoff uh, from Clavin, Mane, and Firmino. Both keepers made two saves. So. Before the free kick, even though I thought we had them on the back foot and our press was more organized and energetic than I've seen recently and it was effective and I thought that we had them unsettled, you know, the tweet that I put out there to sort of summarize the game the way I saw it is that in the first half, our lightweight attacking options failed to take advantage of our dominance. And in the second half, our lightweight defensive options cost us the game as we capitulated. Um Paul, I mean, do, do you disagree with what the numbers seem to suggest from our first half? I okay, do. well, I suspect it as such based on the comments section of our <laughs> Skype chat. Please have a go. So uh, uh, stats are great and everything, but sometimes they're full of shit. Um, well, the stats aren't full of shit. No, the they are. The interpretation of the stats can no, be full of shit. No, even the stats. I mean, they show okay. something, but their significance. It's not even the interpretation. It's whether they miss things or whether they get things. And this is a game where the stats in the first half missed the play because there's an absolutely no way of watching that without saying we didn't win pretty much every battle all over that pitch. We were sensational. I, I don't disagree. The, I the don't disagree. Cra- the crowd were cheering. They're clapping. We won headers. We won another header, you know. So it, although we, they may have won more tackles than us, blah, blah, I don't care. I watched that, I've watched that half now twice. I haven't watched the whole game. I got to 63 minutes. Um, we absolutely deserved the first half plaudits. I certainly agree that on their counter-attacking opportunities, as we've seen many times before, um, you know, their opportunities were maybe more dangerous than ours. That's kind of the nature of the beast, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. But, 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 I, Paul. I mean, I'm I'm not suggesting for a minute that we weren't well on top. What I'm suggesting is that. We were well on top with the pressure we put them under, but did not create the chances or execute good in the offensive uh, half. And I think that's very fair. We and have. obviously, we had Alexis's striker, and we'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. And that didn't seem to bear any fruit. But then you look at one or two moments that can turn a game. I mean, uh, you know, we had that whole thing with Theo last year of he gets like five touches when he's at center forward and blah blah blah. But <laughs> but does he influence the game or doesn't he? Kind of thing. And today was. This time around, it was Alexis's turn. So there's the moment where Alexis makes that. Montreal puts the ball, ball over the top, and Alexis times his run wrong. But he's absolutely through one-on-one with the keeper, and you fancy mm-hmm. him to, to bury that. And he has another great opportunity in the first half, which, again, he kind of uh, offside or whatever. He's, he's just you, So one or two moments, those things kind of turn. Um, uh, but I do agree overall that their opportunities were as good as ours. Um, But, you know, at this time... So I'm not saying there's nothing to it. I'm saying you can't throw the baby, which we love, out with the bathwater of stats to say you can dismiss the first half or, hey, they they didn't really come to play in the first half. They did. We came in... No, of course. We corrected last year's mistake. And so... You know, I, I, I'm not dismissing it all. I'm saying w- I think we're a little turbocharged because it's the first game of a 38-game season where we're all primed up. 
the criticisms are valid, but let's not throw away what we saw in the first half. I guess well, okay, but but again, what we saw in the first half was a, an organized and energetic press that worked and worked in a way we haven't been able to make it work in recent seasons. But we did see an Aaron Ramsey who was ineffective in the 10, uh, Alexis Sanchez who couldn't really pull off playing a striker. We did see a team that struggled to create real clear-cut scoring chances because of a lack of first-class talent across the front front three, front four. So, I think Tim, that's look, right. I, I, and so in the front three, I would say that, you know, two of those, particularly when you throw in Ramsey, I think didn't really show themselves off. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit about a Wobie. But on the other hand, Theo was the Theo of old, at least for 45 minutes. So, sorry to cut across, Tim. Yeah, no, he he had, he had some bright points, and I mean, they all did. Look, it was it was a perfectly acceptable first half, but again... And I pack, think you, you know, can the, see the were... strategy from Theo, because you don't always see him, to Tim's point, you don't always see him coming out turbocharged, pressing, making tackles. You know, if you could bottle the first 45 minutes, that, that was not the worst half we've played in a long no, time. No, of course not. Of course not. Look, I mean... At the other end of the spectrum, 71% passing from Iwobi, 75% passing from Coughlin, um, Ramsey, 84%, and just 26 passes, which, I, granted, he only played an hour, but, you know, he's he's usually right around 100 pass per game type guy. Um, Alexis Sanchez, 16 passes at 75%. A little different when you're playing striker, but it, it just wasn't coming off for him as well. Tim, I, I want to ask you a couple things about the first half. The first is just... In a half where we were dominant, at least in the, um, in sort of the tone of the play, in the flow of the game, did you have any misgivings about execution in in the offensive half and and the chances we failed to create or take in the final third? Yeah, definitely. Um, actually, I I didn't really feel, um, you know, hugely like. We dominated the first half. We, I mean, we did, like you say, tonally. But I, I wasn't sitting there thinking. I, I wasn't. I certainly wasn't sitting there thinking it should be any more than one nil. Right. Don't thinking, you think some of that is informed by maybe some of the 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 pessimism going into the game that we had played as well as as we had maybe somewhat unexpectedly. Um. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I, I, I just kind of sat there thinking, you know, this is good. This is like a nice start, and um, I, I really wanted us to kind of build on it. Though I, I wasn't sat there thinking, oh, this should, this should be two or three nil because it shouldn't have been, and uh, I wasn't sitting there thinking, you know, this will, this will do. I was thinking, right, this is a good base to start from, but in the second half, kind of. I expect some players to grow into the game a little bit more and some players to have a little bit more of an effect. Um, you know, maybe Ramsey being one of them. I think it's worth saying that Ramsey picked up that knock a long time before he went off. Um, he was complaining about that on about half an hour. I saw him signal to the bench. I'm sure those chickens won't come home to roost as a result. No, <laughs> <laughs> no exactly. So I, I think in slight mitigation for him, um, I, I think he was he was basically carrying for um, for quite a long time, which in itself is quite a silly thing to do, considering injury history, both his and you know how many examples do we need at Arsenal of uh, players playing on, and uh, you know with the kind of busy summer he had and everything, but 
I think he just really, really wanted to impress in that number 10 role. He really wanted a shot at it because he knows that Mesut Ozil was coming back next week and he was kind of desperate to make his case. But yeah, I, I, w- I was pleased with the first half um, to a point, but I, I certainly wasn't sitting there thinking, oh, this is great. We've dominated this. You know, we're all over them. I, I still thought, I thought the kind of technical base was good, but I was, I was kind of thinking, well... Iwoga's not really in the game. Walcott's on the periphery of the game. Alexis is on the periphery of the game. Ramsey's on the periphery of the game. You know, I thought we were good up to a point, but I completely agree. I think that that front four didn't really impress themselves on the game. But then you get, you know, with Theo Walcott, you get one or two moments, and that's what we got from him. We got, we basically got three moments out of Theo in this game. Him winning the penalty him missing the penalty, him scoring the goal, they all happen within, what, two minutes? Yeah. Um, the, the irony the is other... I, you could make an argument that three of our worst players on the day scored are three goals. <laughs> I think T.O. was a lot uh, better than that. I would say that, that about Chamberlain. But... What was that, Paul? I think T.O. was a lot better than that. I think okay, in his well, general well... play in the first half. I mean, okay. the overall point I'd hold, uh, I'd agree with you guys, but Theo did a lot more than three things. For you know, we're still talking about Theo. Don't get me wrong. You well, know. well. So let me, let me ask you a question about Theo. Tim, did, what was your take on him taking the penalty? Um, and did you have any strong reaction to that one way or the other? Yes. And it, <laughs> yes, and it, and it was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I wasn't. You know, because when you're in the stadium and you're just about to take a penalty, you know, you don't want to go. What the? You know what the? You, know, <laughs> you don't want to try and create a negative atmosphere, but all three of us sat there and went, "Why is he taking it?" Because... I mean, I mean, Alexis won a Copa America with with a penalty yeah. kick. Like, I mean, he's, yeah, he's got to be the guy, exactly. Right? And and I know I know Alexis has missed one in the yeah, Arsenal yeah. shirt, but his most recent penalty form is basically taking the biggest kick in the history of Chilean football and penenkering it. In Santiago, like so that 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 suggests to me he's got some chooks path there. He's got some form there, you know. I'd have given it to Ramsey before Walcott, yeah. um, personally as well. I'd have probably given it to El Nenny um, before him as well because El Nenny, you know, he he connects with the ball quite well. Uh, listen, I, I don't want to just get on Theo's back about something that's that's relatively minor, but I think you just got the absolute encapsulation inside sixty seconds. He had the penalty, which takes time to think, time to consider options, and it was a poor penalty. It's just like the worst penalty you can take. And then 60 seconds later, when he's got no time, no time to think whatsoever, snapshot, brilliant. And how many times have we seen that? And it's just penalties aren't for Theo Walcott because, you know, unless the ball gets put down and struck in like 0.3 seconds, then... Penalties aren't for Theo Walcott, I'm afraid. And I, I think, I, you know, I get that we didn't have Cazorla there and, and blah, blah, blah. But there, I think there are several better candidates. And even even in lieu of really strong candidates, Theo Walcott would be towards the back of the queue for Arsenal penalty takers for me. Do, do you think... One do you think against it, Roma in a shootout a few years ago, and it it went in, but it wasn't a good one. Do, do you think at some level it's a microcosm of just something we're seeing at the club right now, which is a lot of head scratching decisions, just 
curious decisions where you don't really understand where the leadership is, where the thought process is, how you arrive at that conclusion. I mean, as Theo stepped up to take it, I was certainly thinking he could score it. Um, I was certainly thinking he shouldn't be the one taking it. And as it turns out, I don't know that it was that big a deal in the end. But it's, again, another example of decision-making at the club that just seems directionless, isn't it? A, a, a little bit, yeah, yeah. It's a little, like you said, I don't think it's like an enormous failing. Or no, but just like at that, every but... step, right, who's going to be the captain, the transfer policies, the starting yeah, lineups? So, yeah. There's so many things right now that you just scratch your head and and you can't quite understand the thought process. And I thought and... Theo taking a penalty was just another little example of decision-making at the club that you don't fully understand at, yeah, at any level. Yeah, my... My my best guess is that they spoke about it before the game, and Theo just went me, and <laughs> you know, and Wenger was like, yeah, okay, whatever, and everyone else was probably a bit like, uh, okay, I'll, you know, <laughs> and and probably thinking to themselves, what? And um, to to go on a slight tangent here, I, I went to um, you know, Ivan Gazidis's Q and A over the summer, and Lee Dixon was there, and one of the things Lee Dixon said that I thought was really really interesting, he said, um. I, I think, like, I look at this Arsenal squad and I think they like each other, I think they get on, and I think they're all friends. But he said, that doesn't mean you've got team spirit. He said, um, and, you know, he made this point about look at Arsenal when they concede a goal. Nobody says anything. And actually, team spirit is, you know, shouting at people when they've made mistakes and urging them on and stuff like that. And he was saying, you know, the squads I played in, so he said, some of the guys I, I couldn't stand, to be honest, and haven't said a word to them since I retired. But I knew that if I made a mistake or they made a mistake or someone did something or said something out of turn that it would be dealt with. And I don't know. It's, it's just me guessing. But I'm, I'm really, really guessing that, that Theo just put his hand up first and everyone just kind of went, uh, OK. And yeah. the manager was just like, yeah, go on, you decide. And, you know, that there wasn't, like you say, there wasn't like a firm line on this. Well, and it's borne out by the fact that after the match, the manager says, you know, he was our designated penalty taker. And then when I asked if he'd know. take another one, he says, I don't know. I mean, that, exactly, you know, again, it's, he's not deciding. Right. It's in, he's, he's letting them decide. It's totally inconsistent. Um, let, Let's move on from the first half. Coutinho's free kick was brilliant. It came at a terrible time and it, and it, it really probably cost us some momentum, but Klopp, adjusted at halftime it's fair to say paul the 20 minutes where we went from 1-1 to 4-1 down really some of the worst football i've seen at arsenal since 8-2 this had this felt like 8-2 to me and i'll explain that in a minute um what do you put those 20 minutes down to what did you see go wrong for us apart from everything yeah well i wouldn't go that far but I, I I understand where you're coming from. Um, yeah, well, by the way, I'll, I'll explain, because I'm sure there are people that are like, oh, it's nothing like 8-2, but I'll explain why I feel that in just a second. Yeah. Um, so the uh, first thing you got to say is uh, we should listen a little bit. to. I know we've, we've tuned Arson out uh, after the game, but I think he has a point, and it, it's not too hard to agree with his point, which is certainly the heads dropped after the goal. And I think the other thing one should have expected coming into this match was that Liverpool would play at a higher rate, not just because of their commitment to the Gagan press or whatever you want to call it at the moment, but they've been doing this three training sessions a day from an energy standpoint. So um, you could expect 
kind of like we ran into at West Ham last year. You could expect that they would have a higher energy level. And when I think Wenger might have been trying to say was more, you could see at the start of the second half a disparity in energy levels as opposed to we were tired and we have an excuse for it. Um, I think it definitely showed. I think the other thing that was that really hurt us at the start of that second half was just distribution from the back. It was awful. Now, I know there was a discussion around, uh, you know, the centre-backs and whether the midfielders were making themselves available. But if you go and look, go and look at each one of every time we lose the the ball there's an option the option might be just passing it back to your keeper but there's an option in most cases there's a midfield option um so it our midfield may not you know el neni is not the most strategic player in the world coquelin is more an action player so they may not have been in perfect positions but they were, by and large, making themselves available and some of the distribution from the back. I don't want to hit, beat up two young centre-backs, and Chambers in particular, I thought, was was uh, startlingly bad. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, though, terrible. but that puts tremendous pressure on a team that's already operating at a lower energy level than the other guys, and you combine those two together. And then you throw in one other fact. Liverpool were fucking brilliant in finishing. And uh, some of their, some of the movement, some of the play was just top class. If they do that all year, they'll win the league. They won't do it all year. Sometimes you run into a buzzsaw, and that 15, 20 minutes was that time. And it again, it um, it exaggerates the shitness of our performance, which in the second half, in, early in the second half, we kind of came apart of the seams, starting from the back. The front, our front was anonymous, and our midfield, I think, was would have been maybe okay, not great, maybe not matching Liverpool, but would have been maybe okay, had distribution from the back. Not, you know, there's a moment where Bellerin's charging forward with the ball, and even he does this long ball up to Alexis, which uh, there's Ramsey, him and Theo. Uh, Ramsey, Alexis, and Theo leading the line in a straight line. Nobody gave him much variety. So Bellerin decides to bang up across to Alexis, which he's never going to win. And it's you know that's just one more lost ball. So you go back and you look at why there was so much pressure on us in those twenty minutes. It's all about distribution. It's not. Uh, I wouldn't even say it's about the midfield. I know people say, well, that's about positioning, blah blah blah. But the posi- there are options available. We brought this pressure on ourselves and our distribution from the back and our build-up from the back is absolutely mm-hmm. gash. And they we, were sec- they they absolutely penalized us brilliantly, what, three times in the second half. They were superb, unfortunately, from a finishing standpoint. They completed almost twice as many passes as us. They outshot us 7-1. to one. They outscored us 3-1. to one. Uh, This is during between 45th and 65th minutes. Yeah. And there were virtually no tackles or interceptions made during that period at all. So Yeah, and they moved it, they moved it wide beautifully. We saw that. They sliced and diced Monreal uh, a couple of times. Um, but, but, I mean, again, there were some basic communication errors and tracking errors by the center backs. Tim, let me ask you, yeah. if you had to do a finger-pointing-based analysis of that that period of time, what where would you have to most aggressively point here 
wag, wag or point your finger. Well, Wenger said quite tellingly after the game, actually. That holding said, was pretty um, good? <laughs> he said that, but he said if you look at the goals, the mistakes did not come from the inexperienced players. For me, I I tweeted this immediately. I don't often tweet immediately after games because, you know, you're prone to overreaction. And, yeah. Uh, I possibly overreacted. That's where I live, I baby. Said. Overreaction city <laughs> at the corner of rant and rave. That, that's your prime <laughs> time was... to get on Twitter. <laughs> you bet it is, motherfucker. <laughs> Give me my phone. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, I was in the concourse straight after the game and I said that I thought Coutinho's second goal was one of the worst goals I've ever seen Arsenal concede. Mm-hmm. I, I actually... Um, I. I don't think I did overreact so much. And my where I'm coming from on that is Liverpool, quote-unquote, put together a move of 19 passes in the build-up to that goal. I think at least eight of them were crap passes or crap control. Like That is the worst 19-pass move I've ever seen in my life. Like That passing was not good. It was not crisp. It was not fast. It was rubbish. It was absolutely substandard technically. And nobody got anywhere near the ball. Even 50%, even a midfield going at 50% would have had that ball away, no problem. And, you know, all the pressing we did in the first half and we were really closing them down, 10% of that would have got that ball back. And, you you know, I said on the preview as well that actually... I'm not as concerned about the personnel at centre-half because I think Arsenal have got bigger defensive problems. And one of them is, and it's as simple and as boneheaded as this, that team just do not work fucking hard enough off the ball. They just don't. They do, When the opposition have the ball, they just they don't care. Like They don't care as much about getting the ball back as they do once they've got the ball. They like having the ball. They like attacking. That's cool. They're, they're expressive players. There's you know quite a few technical players. It's what they enjoy. They enjoy passing the ball about. But when they haven't got it anymore, and it comes time to do like the dirty work and go and get it back, they're just not motivated enough. They don't do enough to protect that back four. And you know we had Chambers and Holding at centre back, fine, and they they both had rough afternoons, which I think you'd expect. But honestly, and we conceded four goals. Honestly, I think if we'd have had, let's say we have Mertesacker and Koscielny there, I still think we're conceding three goals at least. Mm-hmm. At least two or three. Yeah. Like, I don't think our first-choice centre-half pairing suddenly solves all that and we keep a clean sheet. We don't. And it's because they don't get enough protection because the guys in front of them don't care about winning the ball back. They just don't care. And you saw that in the third goal, in the Coutinho goal. It, it, it reminded me... I don't know if you've ever seen, there's a Simpsons episode where Krusty is betting against the Harlem Globetrotters. He's watching, <laughs> and you know, one of them's spinning the ball on his finger, and he's just shouting at the TV screen, he's spinning the ball on his finger, just take it! And that, that's what I was like, sitting there, I was just like, this is, this is crap passing, this is not Iniesta and Javi moving the ball around at dizzying speeds. This is fucking Jordan Henderson <clears throat> yeah. overcooking a 10-yard pass and his teammate miscontrolling it and still having the ball under control and just passing it into our net. And that is it's just symptomatic. We've seen it time and time and time again, and I think we'll continue to see it. 
And I just don't see Arsenal getting to that next level until they sort that out. And it doesn't seem to matter who we play in midfield, who we play up front, who the central midfield pairing is. They just don't work hard enough. And even when you get a player like Elneny, who for the first six months of his Arsenal career looks like he's had a fire under his arse, and all of a sudden the malaise has hit him as well hmm. in that second half. And I don't buy, after 70, 80 minutes, fine, it's the first game of the season, maybe their fitness levels aren't up there. That Coutinho goal was, what, the 52nd minute, something like that? Or, you know, it was before the hour mark. I do not buy that they were too tired to go and chase that ball down, particularly because it wouldn't have taken much effort to take it back. So, you know, I, th I think there are, there are a lot of individual errors. Like I said, I think Monreal got taken to the cleaners and they targeted him. I think Chambers and Holding had tough afternoons. But ultimately, that team does not work hard enough off the ball. And that is everybody's yeah. responsibility. And until everybody takes that responsibility, we we could, I don't care who we have at centre-half. Until they sort that out, we will never know how good or bad our centre-halves are. Yeah, and I mean, look, th this is a team that, even despite all of the talent and quality that, that's in it, has a habit of losing by three, losing by four, or it's certainly conceding three, conceding four, conceding five, conceding six. Um, you know, under Arsene Wenger... Since that 8-2, we've had games where we've conceded six, five, multiple fours, tons of threes. Um, you know, there are teams in the Premier League that will not concede four in a single game this season, and we did it at home on opening day by... And how, and how bad do you think it would have got if Chamberlain hadn't scored straight away at 4-1? Because that changed things, and that changed the atmosphere in the stadium, by the way, which was about to turn, but that Chamberlain goal kind of dangled the carrot and kept people engaged in the actual yeah. game. Well, and they missed a but, sitter. I mean, they had chances. They missed a sitter. They had, yeah. I mean, yeah, it could have been five, six, seven. It was headed that way. I totally agree yeah. with you. I mean, I also think the changes made a difference. I think Cazorla, who should have started, made an absolutely massive difference. Um, I, I, you know, the reason this reminded me of the 8-2 is very simple. Going into that game, you had a feeling of this could be a problem. You looked at the defense in that team. You just looked at the team that we had available to send out at Old Trafford. And we were there for the taking. And, yeah, there, there's always a scenario where that 10% chance or that 5% chance that you play well enough to win comes through, but there's the 90% or 95% chance that the other thing happens. And I felt the same going into this. You know, no matter how much you analyze something, once you see it come to fruition and you see it on paper, it, it feels differently. And I have to tell you guys, when the lineup came out, I felt really angry. Um, not just because that's my default position, but because I looked at it and I said, we have a center back pairing of a 20-year-old who was at the bottom of the championship last year and a 21-year-old the manager doesn't trust. We have no center back on the bench. We have a striker who's not a striker who the manager didn't want to ever use as a striker and a winger who the manager said isn't a winger and a guy on the other wing who is really a youth player. You know, he's 20 years old. He had a, he had a decent breakthrough into the squad last season, but... That's our front line, and we have no striker on the bench besides Chuba Akpom. And you look at that and you say, that's that's amazing. I mean, we have hundreds of millions of pounds in the bank, and that's what we're doing on opening day. We're not ready. We're not fit. The manager says after Manchester City, physically we look ready. He says after Liverpool, physically we weren't ready. <clears throat> he says Theo Walcott is a striker now. He's not a winger. He plays him at winger. He says Theo's the designated penalty taker. He says, I don't know if he'll take penalties again. Um, 
at every turn right now, we are a contradiction. And I'm sorry, but when I saw that lineup, I thought this is a lineup that could get turned over. I mean, of course, there's the 10% chance that it plays well and wins. And, and we really made a fist of it in the first half. But 4-1 was a reflection of what that team was. And to be in that situation opening day, there is no excuse. There's no excuse for not being prepared, for not being fit physically, for not having the players in that you need. There's no excuse when you're Arsenal Football Club, you're in London, you have the Emirates, you have all the money in the world for you to not be able to at least look by 60, 60 minutes into your first home game and people are streaming out of the stadium. It's just, it's not acceptable. And it'd be more acceptable in the context of it not being familiar, but it was so familiar. It's what, seven losses from the, or set, we've won one of our last eight opening day games, something like that. So it was really frustrating. And during that rant, I know one of you was trying to jump in. Was it you, Tim? Yeah. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to say really, really quickly. So when Wenger said, you know, after the game that um, we weren't physically prepared, I know that's, that's quite an amazing statement, really. Maybe it was just a throwaway to stop talking about the game, but what I would like to know is, does that mean he's taking responsibility for that? Is that him saying that's my fault? Or is he saying that like, you know, like it's something like... Some like something he had no control over. Yeah. <laughs> outside of his control. Is he is he standing up and saying, I'm responsible for that, you know, blame me? Or is it just like, well, you know, this is some crazy unforeseen factor came in. I'd really like to know because I don't really understand... Tim, the, the, Tim, the context. how was he supposed to know we were going to have to play Premier League football on August 14th? You know, I mean, come on. Uh, l- let me ask you something, Paul, because I, I think you tend to take a more forgiving I do. look at things. And, and I, I, I want to understand something. Um, let's say you have a 55-year-old manager who's only been in the job a season or he's new. He doesn't have the luxury of fucking away the first game of the season and losing, being down 4-1 after an hour at home. He doesn't have the luxury. He has to throw Koscielny back in the firing line in the first game, or he has to bring in a center back, or he has to play Olivier Giroud in this game. He has to do something because he doesn't have 20 years of goodwill and the feeling that he can just, you know, blow it off, you know, brush it off his shoulder and come forth and be fine. Is Arsene Wenger managing this club now from a position of excessive sense of comfort and entitlement such that he's he doesn't feel that he has to make that edgy decision or that crucial choice or that extra push in the market because he knows he's he's got time on his side is he not has he lost the the nervousness that keeps most managers going or or Elliot has he the balls, the chutzpah, and the the tenure at the club to avoid making a hasty bad decision that by the end of November, we lost the first game last year, when we, look, when we may potentially look like the best team in the league and are basically nudging the top of the league table, will he... Because, you know, to all your... I could go through all your points... That, that you mentioned there, and I'm not saying you're wrong, but there's a very good counterpoint in every one of them. I remember uh, Squid Boy talking about how if he saw Alexis in the lineup before September, he'd do his fucking nut. Last year, you mean? Last summer? No, this summer. Because I can't, I can't imagine he would have said it this summer. He did, yeah. He said <laughs> if Alexis comes back and plays before September, he'd have a meltdown. So uh, I heard 
somebody, uh, one of the pundits yesterday saying, and do you think Dimitri Payet won't be starting tomorrow? He didn't start tomorrow. But he did play. He yeah, did come he, on. He did come on. Um, but he said he'd start. Uh, he'd be, you know, Payet was thrown on because they were losing and shit. Um, so they were losing, and they started without Payet. Kishelny, uh, uh, I mean, I mean, how much time have we spent berating Arsenal in the past for throwing players into the firing line who weren't ready, and now we have a manager who has made some changes we all requested. Apparently, he d- hasn't made them quite the way we want him to make them, and the changes we want. He's the one with all the data. Now, maybe he's got it wrong. But the one thing I won't beat up Arsene Wenger for yesterday is for not rushing players back uh, when we've got a 38-game season ahead of us and for not panicking. to. Br- I mean, of all managers to accuse of not bringing players back soon enough, that has not been his flaw in a hundred other seasons. No, I get it, but it's it's not even consistent, right? Like he brought Alexis back way too soon last season before he wanted to, and and oh. it was a mistake, and it was because he didn't feel he had a choice. And this season, you know, he's trying to do the opposite. I, listen, by the way, I want you to know something. I'm not saying he should have used Kashelny. I'm not saying he should have used Giroud. I'm not saying he should have used Ozil. None of that. What I'm saying is. He kind of punted all together. He didn't get a center back in after Murtisacker was injured, and he didn't rush back. As, so but, he but, but you can't he mix, didn't solve the problem. Yeah, yeah, but you can't mix those two up because what you're saying is if the hole's big enough, then I should throw a player into danger. What I'm saying uh, is a, a you man, don't go into the opening game of the season with Chambers and holding at center back. And like, what you I'm just saying can't. is your scenario of an, a manager who has to make a hasty decision, this 55-year-old mm-hmm. new manager... One of the advantages of having an experienced manager with tenure is he doesn't make that decision. He makes okay, it fair. based on a 38-game season, Champions League and Cups, and he made his decision and he stuck with it. And, you know, slam him for lots of things yesterday. I'll defend him for a lot of those things just because you don't know what you don't know. There's another side to the coin. Obviously, he got it wrong. Obviously, it was overall, it was a very poor performance. Obviously, he has this whole summer to see this coming. Little unlucky with Purr uh, and then Gabrielle. Um, for both of them to go out is extremely unlucky before the first game. Uh, That's just me smashing a bottle to keep from screaming. Sorry. Understandable. Um, you know, he's left with a young centre-back pairing. Uh, he hasn't managed to get the other center back in. I think that's the his biggest fault in all of this. But you know, damned if damned when he does and damned when he doesn't. So uh, I, I get it. I I think what I'm saying is that again, it's it's not so much damned when he does, damned when he doesn't. It's that doesn't he have to find a solution that isn't. I'm going to throw in my zero experience 20-year-old center back and the guy I don't rate at 21 against a really aggressive pressing side at home on opening day. I mean, isn't it that you don't get to say you weren't physically ready? I, I guess it's just that... You, you make this, your best decision. Now, yeah. he, he has to live with certain things. He has to live with the fact that he but didn't get But his big his... decisions, Paul, like, like here's, here's, I guess what I would say is this, right? The manager has to make big decisions. Of course, that's why he's paid £8 million a year. That's why he manages one of the biggest clubs in the world. That's how he got the reputation he has, by making big decisions. 
the decisions he's making aren't going his way that much anymore. Like that would be my that would be my argument, right? Like it's not so much that, that I that, know Elliot, what's that, best. That, it's that, that's he doesn't fine. have a good track record that's, being built up right now. Yeah, but why watch the season then? I mean, if we're going to write him off. I'm not so, I, look, I, I'm not writing him off. I mean, I think you know my position, which is that I think we're past due for change, but I'm certainly not writing him off. I'm saying in this his first this was his first crisis to manage of the season, and granted it came before the season even started, and well, he's exactly. 0 for 1, you he, know? Yeah, he's 0 for 1, 30, 38 in a season. So, I mean, uh, I understand your point. I understand many people listening will say, yeah, well, this is a pattern. Okay, I get that. But if you if that's the only pattern you see with Arson, you're going to have a terrible year watching this team. Um, it's not. I mean, look, he's not. Look, we we have stayed at the top of English football for twenty plus years. It is a remarkable achievement. The question is, at a period of time where we maybe could have leveraged our financial might, our our the talent we did have, our tactical capabilities better to achieve more. I agree. We, we argue we have two, now, But there's two weeks left in the window, right? Yeah. Oh, so, well, we've got to get some business done, and I think we will. Yeah. But, so let, let me ask you something. there's 38 games less in the year. So, so while I don't agree with the question, we don't have the answer yet. Now, now uh, you know, if I had to bet my life on it, I'd bet with you. But, but I don't think we can get too far down the road of let's throw everything out the window at this point because no, we got to No, the season's season not over. I mean, that's not my point. My point and is not he, that all is he lost. May, and he may change. I don't mean well, change fundamentally. I mean change certain aspects of what we do. But my biggest here, – here's my summation of Arson. I understand all the frustrations. I understand all the things about tactics and strategy and approach and science. I don't really give a fuck. Arson – way of playing football in my view can win and the reason it hasn't is he hasn't had enough quality and with quality he hasn't had good enough execution we could have won yesterday there's many games in the past we could have won if he gets the quality in this year and if they execute he can still win the league from my standpoint you picked him to win last year i picked him to come second i did but and and i mean i picked him to win because i thought when i made that prediction that we would get into the market and get the business done before the end of the window, which was the striker. Sure. And I maintain that had we done it, we do get over the line last season. Good. Um, and and the, <laughs> let it not be said that the opportunity was certainly there. Tim, let me ask you a question. One of the things that I think is interesting is that's a 4-1 game that could have been worse, but it ends 4-3. Do you think it ending 4-3 to some extent made may do us a disservice because it puts a gloss on it that maybe doesn't ring the alarm bells that should be rung? Um, n- no, maybe not. Um, I mean, I think I think there was a measure of character in coming back in at, at 4-3, though I think we caught Liverpool very cold by getting the second one straight away. And Liverpool were absolute rubbish at defending set pieces. So um, the Callum Chambers goal was was. Not inevitable, but you know that's that's a real, real weak point for Liverpool. They don't seem to have fixed. It's a great Cazorla um, delivery too. It has to be said. It, it is, yes, yeah, superb delivery. Um, in fact, he he had lovely touch. He's uh, such an important player for us. Was so disappointed te- he didn't start. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, te- I mean, technically, he got the assist for the Chamberlain goal with a lovely touch, albeit Chamberlain then takes the ball from the touchline and beats three players. So 
technically an assist, but it's, it's probably overstating it. But it's a lovely touch through out of the air, just a what first time cushion ball. Um, I, I don't think that it kind of that it you know gives the scoreline or that it, it, it creates any reassurance anywhere. I mean, this is Arsenal, right? Every time we don't win, it's a massive, massive crisis and everyone is massively unhappy. Right, right. but um, if you're the manager and you've just lost 4-1 at home on opening day, you might have to look and say, I've gotten this badly wrong. I need to correct it now. I can't let this go down this path anymore. At 4-3, you can write it off as wacky game. Who could have seen that, I, you know? No, I don't. I don't see that from Arsenal, to be honest. I think well, that's good. Um, if 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 you're talking about getting a centre half in, shipping four goals at home, whether you score one or three, makes that case fairly eloquently for you. He looked um, he looked mighty sheepish at the end of the game yesterday, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I, he know, got the I message. Think, yeah, I think he knows, and. Um, you know, he, he could equally turn around and say, well, we scored three goals, he needs a striker. I don't think he's going to do that. I think um, basically what whatever's going to happen with Arsenal's business is going to happen pretty much regardless of the results. Um, I, I still think that, that they're definitely in for a centre-half um, and I think they definitely want the striker and if there's enough change, I think they'll go for Mahrez as well, but um, and maybe spinning some plates there, but I, I really don't think this changes anything in his mind, particularly on the defender front. He said very explicitly that defender's the priority, and we just conceded four goals. Did you did you see the Ornstein quotes so. today, David Ornstein from yes, the BBC? Yes, yes, I did. Yeah. Um, do you want to just touch on that because I think that's got a lot of people pulling their hair out. Yeah, yeah. So for people who haven't read it, he basically said that Arsenal. Uh, uh, possibly holding some money back because they want a big striker purchase. I I wouldn't be surprised if that was true, just because, I don't know, it, it depends how much this... Right, so Lacazette, they could have got that done by now if they really, really wanted to get it done. So I'm hoping that, that the reason they haven't is because perhaps they've got a bigger iron in the fire and there's certainly been some noise about that. Um, and if that's true, then, you know, and if it's if it's going to take like 60, 70 million or whatever, having already spent 40 million this summer, you know, that that may have an effect. I I personally think that Arsenal are in with like three players and they're probably trying to do some juggling at the moment and trying to work out how much all three of those players will cost. I think they want the centre back. I think they want the centre forward. I think they're going to go in for Mares at some point. I still have that feeling. So maybe there's an air of, oh, how much are all three of those going to cost? And you know, but I also think that, um, you know, we've fed David Ornstein some information before that wasn't um, particularly true, just as we were closing in on a deal. So if you look up his tweets about the Mikel Arteta transfer, for example, about three hours before that was done, um, he tweeted the deal's off, um, and it wasn't. Um, I think the fact that David Ornstein specifically named two other defensive targets, I mean, it, it looks to me like it. that's a kind of that signal Amen. Um, to Valencia. That's a kind of, um, yep. look, we've got other irons in the fire. 
Now, you, I, I think you know you can you can look at that and say, well, why the fuck are we doing this? You know, for the sake of a few million, but. But but see that's where I think the message was, Tim. I I think this he was briefed for two reasons. No, I I don't look. To me, this was transparent. There there were two messages here. Message one was: Here are the targets, Valencia. We have no problem moving off Mustafi and going for them. Message two was to the fans: We're not dithering. We're holding back money because we're going to do madness at center forward. Yeah, I, I think there, and the there proof were two... will be in the pudding. Yes, of course. <laughs> I, like... I think there was a, another piece to it, which was the reason we're negotiating hard while having options. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, a twist on it. We negotiate hard uh, on on this center back option because we're also buying you a madness for Christmas. This is why right, we that do was it. my point. Yeah. That's my point, right? Half half of the briefing is for the fans. You know, don't get yep. mad at us for 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 uh negotiating on on center back because that's how you're going to get your striker that you want. Yep. And the other half is for Valencia saying, "Here are the other guys we're going to go get at center back if you continue to be stupid to, to turn down our offers." Right. So um, Yeah, go ahead, Tim. And that puts, but that puts a lot of pressure on them um, in terms of who is the striker. And we, I mean, people don't get me wrong. People won't settle on anything other than this guy being signed now for big money. Um, Jimmy so they've Madness. got to deliver on that. And and at the very very least, there has to be like some evidence that we've gone for someone like that. And it's perhaps you know gone a bit Suarez or mm-hmm. or gone a bit Benzema, but. There has to, uh, most people won't settle for that, and I completely yeah. understand why. But basically, if, if they're putting that message out, they've got to deliver on it, and that's that's putting a lot of pressure on themselves. It is, and, and could I just quickly add? Yeah, go ahead. I, I don't, uh, I, I hear what Tim's saying. I think if it goes Suarez on us, uh, we're fucked. I mean, I don't mean footballistically. I mean, Arsenal wants a new transfer contract. Wise. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't even mean transfer-wise. I mean club-wise. It's going to be a fucking meltdown. If we come out of this season with just a centre-back out of this window, with just a centre-back and a really good effort at signing Jimmy Madness. Um, without... Yeah, it's going, to, it's going to be toxic. I mean, one, one of the things it's, you guys yeah, that we beyond, talked about, I, toxic, I don't know if yeah. you remember this, but at the end of the season last season, we said the the finishing second and finishing ahead of Spurs bought Arson just that little bit of goodwill because we were teetering so on the brink of every loss turning things toxic. And we said it was a big summer because finishing second, if he went in and got the players we needed, would would be enough to kind of reset with the fans a little bit. But as it stands right now, I think we're right on the brink again of being in that bad place to get out while you can, Joel, and screaming at each other on train platforms. I want to wrap it up because we're approaching the hour mark, but I just want to say one thing really quickly and then... Finish on something. By the way, we didn't get to Shaka. Um, I had wanted to, but since we're at this point, I think we'll pass for now. I think we'd all agree that a summation is his passing looked tidy and his tackling didn't. Fair enough? Yeah. Yeah? Okay. Um, you know, he, he gets a pass. I'd say, I'd say one other thing. He did bring a, a cold-bloodedness that we lacked in that 20 minutes before then. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it would have been better if some of that cold-bloodedness wasn't in the foully sense and more mm. in the accurate tackle sense. But... Understood. Um, here's what I would say. I, I think whenever you manage anything, a business, a, a football team, <clears throat> a golf course, you know, wh- whatever it is, you're trying to create the most paths to success possible, right? You don't want to create such a narrow path to success that things have to go just your way for it to work out. And we talked about this on the last podcast. 
right now, Arson has put himself in a position where the path to success for this team is incredibly narrow. Iwobi has to be really good now. Theo Walcott has to contribute at a high level. Um, Alexis Sanchez probably has to get 25 goals. Um, Shaka has to be a savior. Young defenders have to play above their their experience level. It's just a very narrow path to success. Now, all those things can happen. But odds are some of them won't, and some of them will actually go more poorly than we thought. Ramsey might be out a month or two already. Um, Iwobi might be out, you know, 6, 8, 10, 12, 20, 40, 122 weeks. So we've created a very narrow path to potential success. And you could argue the path is narrowed even more by potentially not being as tactically progressive as we could. That's a topic for another day. Um, So let's finish on this. Tim, what has to happen in your mind for there to be a reasonable path to success between now and the end of the window? Um, Well, I would guess, and I will absolutely stress that I'm only guessing because, like I said on the last pod, I'm one of those really weird people that um, judges by what happens on the pitch. And if last season showed us anything, it's that we don't fucking know until it happens. Um, I had Leicester and West Ham to be relegated last season. So um, there we go. Shit can happen. Asano could be the next Aguero. All the stuff that you just said, it all could come off. And I'm prepared to wait and see what happens. So with that caveat in mind, I suspect... Um, yes, we need a centre-half. I maintain my position. I'm not as troubled about that until the midfield start doing some fucking work off the ball. Otherwise, I just don't think it matters that much. Um, I'm, I'm worried about the forward positions. I think we need a striker. I think we'll get one. What level that striker will be, I don't quite know. I think we will get one. And I think we need a wide forward as well. Um, because, as a, and again, I've said it in the other podcast, Iwobi is in my first choice 11 at the moment. Um, not because he's one of our 11 best players, but because of what he brings to the team. And we don't have enough players like that. And, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd be going for Riyad Mahrez big time because I think he'd be reading some of the signs. Um, I think he'd be very interested in coming to Arsenal. And I think we should be very interested in bringing him. I think he would really, really fit in. And, and really be what we need. But even if it's not him, you know, a good wide forward that we've needed for a while, a good centre forward. Like you said yesterday, you know, we had some territorial dominance of the game, but we didn't do an awful lot with it. And, you know, like I've said Theo and Alexis do have a good partnership. They do have a good understanding at times, but that might not knit together straight away. And uh, we need something more up there so that... Um, when we have first halves like we had yesterday, um, we have lots of chances and we convert those chances and we're 3-0 up before Coutinho whacks that free kick in the top corner. Um, and the rest of it, to me, comes down to not allowing um, teams like Liverpool to pass the ball really sloppily for 19 passes and walk it into your net. And that, that doesn't come from personnel, that comes from something else, that comes from how you're coached, how you're drilled, and how motivated you are. That needs to be sorted, and that needs to be sorted on the training pitch. Um, but in the transfer market, I still think wide forward and centre forward. I'm perfectly willing to be proved wrong. 
Um, but that's what I suspect at this moment in time. Yeah, that, that sounds right. I mean, Paul, for, just so we don't wind up being redundant, anything you want to add or change to that? Uh, I guess my sense is center back and forward is what we're uh, and center forward is what we're going for. I'm not sure I get that we're going to go for a center forward and a wide forward. Would I like one? Yes. Uh, I'm not sure that's what we're trying to do, though. That's just my my take on it. Um, you know, to your question of 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 what do we need to do to stay on this narrow path to success? Um, I don't feel it. I think there are many ways to get there, but very obviously, only one team every year cracks the code. the The thing that makes me sit up and believe it's possible is the fact that Arson wants a new contract. This is the year. On the one hand, mm-hmm. it'll be a fucking nightmare if they don't do the basics to justify it to the fan base. And that means two things. It means signings. Well, it means more than two things. But for starters, it means two things. It means signings and a reasonable start to the first half of the season, or it's going to be a fucking bloodbath. Yeah. Um, so th- that's my take on it. I would demand and expect a good start to the first half of the year. Otherwise, Arson should not look for an additional contract, no matter how much I like him, because he'll put the club and the relationship with the fans, etc., etc. He'll it will be a bloodbath that he and Ivan and Stan allowed to come along because they didn't fucking spend the money. Uh, yeah. Uh, other seasons, you know, fine. Uh, yeah. I'm... Cohesion, blah 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 blah. But this year, if you want to protect your club. The relationship with the fans, all that kind of shit. You over-egg the pudding, or in our case, or in Arson's case, put just about enough eggs in the pudding. Finally, yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And look, the one thing we didn't get to today, and I didn't want to dive into it really because it it just gets too morose at some level. But there's a very serious question, not just about Arson's contract, but about Ozil and Alexis. Um, you know, and given that they are so fundamental to anything we want to do, we really want to get them signed up so that any additions we bring to the squad are final pieces, not, you know, having our key pieces have to be replaced again. That can take years to solve. Um, and certainly a, a really poor start to the season is going to set gears in motion of, of them moving on, not staying. But, you know, that that there's a lot of time left before we have to worry about that. So we better leave it there. It was not the start to the season we wanted. And I think... Look, losses are never great, but losses on opening day where you're being embarrassed after an hour are really hard to take. And it it's awful to be right at the beginning of the season feeling this way. So hopefully we get the business done that we need to, first of all, just to be functional at the back, and then some exciting uh, additions up front. But right now it looks like that, at a minimum, is going to go down to the wire. So we shall see. It's Leicester away next week, correct? Right, guys? Leicester away? Yeah. Uh, we did beat them both times. We played them last season, and we were dominant at the King Power. So hopefully we get our season back on track then. We'll be back after that. But until then, I want to say a big thank you to Paul for bringing some, uh, I guess, optimism to a pod that could otherwise have been a bit doomy, uh, thanks to me mostly. But Paul can be found on Twitter at Pausing in My Pants. Thanks, Paz. Thank you. I hope counterpoint more than optimism. I wouldn't go down the optimism route. But anyway. Yeah. No, no, that, that's fair. I keep keeping my keeping me on the rails, I guess would be another way to put it. Um yeah. and then and Tim, you know, fair and balanced as always. Uh you can find Tim on Twitter at Stilberto. Um 
hopefully you have a better away day than you had at home on opening day. Yeah, I, I, I hope so too. Yeah, and, you know, look, we we have a lot. We, I, we could have talked another hour on this game and talked about Shaka and, and you know, how the midfield should be constructed and, and really dive into the tactics. There's There's so much to unpack around Arsenal right now, and it's hard to know what the real critical things are. I think the interesting thing is that there's a lot of focus on transfers, and Tim, you just kind of hinted at it a little, but there is a very real question about, you know, if we're going to continue to play like we did during that 30-minute period, does it matter who the players are? Um, so there's more that has to be fixed than just bringing in the right personnel, but the right attitude and approach. Um, you know, if this were a tactics pod, I'd love to dive in for an hour on just how disconnected the three units on the pitch were at certain points. If you want to see interesting screenshots, follow Naveen on Twitter, uh, NJM something, 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 I think that should help you find him. Two, one, um, one. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he should have screenshots where, you know, you can't see the midfielders in the picture when, when the defenders have the ball and you can't see the attackers in the picture when the midfielders have the ball. It's just, there's something definitely not clicking there. So on that happy note, my name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Thanks for sticking in. I know our last pod was extremely long and this one kind of was too. Hopefully nice, easy, comfortable wins uh, in our next game or two. We'll see the pods shorten up and just be mostly us laughing and patting each other on the back. Until then, uh, let's hope it all turns around this week in the market and next weekend on the pitch. We'll talk to you next.